Hi, thanks for clicking in. This is Get Ready for Sunday, a weekly podcast previewing the scripture readings designated for the Masses to be celebrated in Catholic churches, one of them's probably near you, Masses this upcoming Sunday. If you'd like to have your eyes on the scripture readings as I talk about them, simply go to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops website. It's usccb.org. In the top navigation bar, select Daily Readings. Scroll down to the date for the Mass and click in. This episode will be a brief look at the Mass for October 17, 2021, the 29th Sunday in Ordinary Time of Year B in the Lectionary Cycle. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm not here to preach at you. I'm here to share some background and context information gathered from the work of genuine scripture scholars and thoughtful commentators, as all that is sifted through my own tiny brain. Today I'll be looking at the readings in the following order. The second reading will come first, followed by the first reading, the responsorial psalm, and last, the gospel. The second reading keeps us in the letter to the Hebrews, which we began two weeks ago. We'll be in Hebrews through the end of the liturgical year. Today's passage continues the image of Jesus as merciful and faithful high priest introduced earlier in the letter. Here it is. A reading from the letter to the Hebrews. Brothers and sisters, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has similarly been tested in every way, yet without sin. So let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace for timely help. The Word of the Lord. To understand the depth of the message here in these two short verses, it helps to think as the original audience and with the background they had. There is an unspoken understanding between author and audience that can leave us, 2,000 years later, substantially in the dark about what it all means. The document, it's a sermon really, probably put into letter form later, the document is aimed at Jewish followers of Jesus, living in and around Rome in the latter half of the first century. This group is subject to much hardship from the unconverted Jewish neighbors they have and from the Romans, and many are weakening in their resolve to remain a part of the new faith communities. This is an exhortation for them to appreciate the greatness of the priestly role of Jesus. They all would understand from a lifetime of being observant Jews, that the high priest was the supreme religious leader of the people. The office of the Jewish high priest then was hereditary and originated with Aaron, the brother of Moses of the Levite tribe. The most important duty of every high priest was to conduct the day-long temple rituals on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement also known as the Sabbath of Sabbaths. On this, the holiest of the Jewish holy days, the high priest would preside over a series of sacrifices 
Two goats and a young bull were key in the recipe. Of the goats, one was offered in temple sacrifice, the other became the symbolic bearer of all the sins of the nation. This goat was led into the desert and thrown from a cliff, sending all those sins back to the demonic realm. This scapegoat, yes, that's where we get the term scapegoat, originated with Aaron, speaking the sins of the Israelite nation over the head of a goat and sending it into the wilderness to perish. Throughout the day the high priest, and only he, would enter the Holy of Holies three times. This was the center and most sacred space in the great temple. There he would stand before God with prayers and sacrificial blood offerings on behalf of himself, his family, and all the nation's people. This annual day of elaborate ritual prayer and sacrifice was intended to appease God for all the sins the people committed during the year just ended. That's what the Hebrew audience for this letter had as context when they heard the term high priest. That Jewish high priest is admittedly sinful. There is ritual on this day taking that into account. Nonetheless, the priestly class remains somewhat aloof from the common Israelite and presumably can sympathize with their plight only from their position of power. Jesus, the author points out, can sympathize from personal experience, living as the people live. The fully human Jesus of Nazareth was subject to every emotion, every trepidation and temptation that we can suffer. He faced all the temptations and struggles we each know so well. The high priest reaches the most sacred spot by passing through a curtain. The preacher tells us Jesus has passed through the heavens. While the high priest enters the symbolic home of God among his people, Jesus enters the real presence of God, the heavens. This Day of Atonement, by its very title, suggests a God of judgment prone to condemnation. His throne in ritual practice receives the blood of sacrificed lives. In contrast, the remarkable self-offering of Jesus creates a throne of mercy and grace. It's a powerful and encouraging passage and serves as a bridge from the earlier discussion in the letter of Jesus as Son of God to what we'll read from this letter in coming weeks. The first reading for this Mass comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah. It's the end of the fourth of Isaiah's Songs of the Suffering Servant of the Lord. This Sunday's passage is just two verses. We hear them and much more of this section of Isaiah on Good Friday every year. In this day's short passage, we read the essence of how God's servant will accomplish his saving mission. Each of these two verses has the prophet speaking in a different voice. The first verse you'll hear is plainly in the voice of a third-person narrator. In the second verse, however, the prophet writes as the first-person voice of God. Throughout all these servant songs, the voice will change from verse to verse. These verses don't take long to read. 
But they do pack a punch. The jarring, outrageous language comes right away. Isaiah knows how to get the attention of his audience. A reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The Lord was pleased to crush him in infirmity. If he gives his life as an offering for sin, he shall see his descendants in a long life, and the will of the Lord shall be accomplished through him. Because of his affliction, he shall see the light in fullness of days. Through his suffering, my servant shall justify many, and their guilt he shall bear. The Word of the Lord. O oh my, our God, whose nature is love itself, was pleased to crush him in infirmity? From the very earliest communities following the risen Jesus, this passage has been interpreted as a direct prediction of his total self-giving and the resulting reconciliation of humanity with the Godhead. Jesus, as Luke's Gospel presents him, refers to the verse that immediately follows what we just heard today. Isaiah reads, Therefore I will give him his portion among the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the mighty, because he surrendered himself to death, was counted among the transgressors, bore the sins of many, and interceded for the transgressors. In Luke, chapter 22, verse 37, Luke's Jesus says, This scripture must be fulfilled in me, namely, he was counted among the wicked, that is, transgressors, and indeed what is written about me is coming to fulfillment. A shallow reading of this passage can leave one with an oversimplified and perhaps misleading impression of what it's saying. So let's read a little more deeply. First, let's note that most interpretation of Isaiah's servant songs within the Jewish tradition sees the servant as the nation of Israel, the entirety of the Jewish people. And indeed, there is plenty of justification for interpreting all four of the songs as referring to a group, just as there is for assuming reference to an individual. Jeremiah established something of a precursor to the servant model. He was a prophet to Israel and suffered greatly in fulfilling his mission. In turn, Israel is the suffering nation and prophet to all the other nations. Moses had promised this nation that living by God's commandments would bring them a peaceful and prosperous life in the land. Over the centuries, they observed this promise being contradicted by prosperity seemingly coming much more easily to the wicked and by the frequent severe sufferings of the just. From this grew a temptation to ignore God's guidance and just do as they wished. The servant in these songs suffers even though he is an innocent man. He shows us the futility of living a just life out of any self-serving motives. Obeying all God's laws is no guarantee of peace or prosperity. God is not promising his children some infinite cosmic ice cream cone if we but follow the rules. Sister Mary McGlone has written, the way to understand the servant 
cannot be found by starting from human wisdom or ambition or even human hope. The only way to understand the revelation of the servant is by remembering that before anything else, the servant is the servant of God. The servant of whom Isaiah speaks, the servant through whom the early Christians came to understand Christ's mission, is a human being whose entire identity comes from the love of God and the willingness to make that love palpable in the world. She goes on, The servant represents God rather than sinful, selfish humanity. What the servant reveals in innocent suffering is God's forbearance in the face of sinfulness and the human rejection of divine love. I think Sister McGlone really captures the deeper meaning very beautifully. The model of the servant calls us to strive for a love of God so visceral and unfailing that concern for personal comfort, safety, or personal gain never eclipses our desire to be of service. Yeah, that's a tall order. And the responsorial psalm today might be a favorite of that servant or of ours, if we qualify. The refrain is both a plea and a proclamation of faith in God's goodness. We're given bits from Psalm 33, which is generally a hymn of praise. I'll omit repeating the refrain in the middle verses. Here it is. Lord, let your mercy be on us as we place our trust in you. Upright is the word of the Lord, and all his works are trustworthy. He loves justice and right. Of the kindness of the Lord, the earth is full. See, the eyes of the Lord are upon those who fear him, upon those who hope for his kindness, to deliver them from death and preserve them in spite of famine. Our soul waits for the Lord, who is our help and our shield. May your kindness, O Lord, be upon us who have put our hope in you. Lord, let your mercy be on us as we place our trust in you. Sunday's Gospel from Mark has some drama, depending on which version you hear. This is a Sunday where there are two possible versions of the Gospel from which the presider or the preacher for the Mass can choose. The longer version is 11 verses, and it has the drama. The shorter version consists of only the last four verses of the passage. I will read the entire passage first, and then dive into it for context and background. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He replied, What do you wish me to do for you? They answered him, Grant that in your glory we may sit, one at your right and the other at your left. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We can. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. 
But to sit at my right or at my left is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they became indignant at James and John. Jesus summoned them and said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones make their authority over them felt. But it shall not be so among you. Rather, whoever wishes to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you will be the slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Gospel of the Lord. So let's talk about James and John. They're brothers, two of the twelve whom Jesus called early in his ministry. James is the older of the two brothers, and both were fishermen who worked for their father, Zebedee, in the region of Galilee. They are sometimes referred to as the Sons of Thunder because of an incident that occurred while traveling through Samaria. Jesus attempted to find accommodations for the night, but was met with opposition from the villagers. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? A little excitable, apparently, and trigger-happy, too, it seems. If the twelve constituted the inner circle of Jesus, then the brothers, along with Peter, were Jesus' executive committee. They, to the exclusion of the others, were present for Jesus being transfigured. They witnessed Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from death and watched the agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Today's Gospel has James and John seemingly trying to secure positions of honor with Jesus. They rather boldly lobby for it without the knowledge of their peers, the other ten men in the company. They even left Peter out of the pitch. That seems rather uh, unchristian, don't you think? And here's a surprise. Jesus doesn't appear to be bothered by their blatant, even selfish ambition, if that is what they are displaying. There is more than one way in which scholars and commentators read this. First, the most obvious reading is what I just outlined. They're greedy or hungry for honor or authority. The others are appalled at their end run to get to Jesus. One commentator speculated that the others were angry only because they hadn't thought of it first. Others read the whole of the scene and suggest the two were fully justified and simply more ready than the others in seeking to follow Jesus through everything to his glorification. As they interpret the scene, the brothers were in fact willing to go through what Jesus would go through. Jesus speaks of the cup from which he will drink and his baptism, both metaphorical terms for the suffering and death he will experience in completing his mission. James was the first of the twelve disciples martyred in 44 A.D. His death is noted in the Acts of the Apostles, and it's the only apostle's death documented in Scripture. His brother John would become known as the Beloved Disciple, 
to whom Jesus entrusted the care of his mother during his last moments on the cross. John was the youngest of the disciples and the only one present at Jesus' death. Tradition within the church is ambiguous about John's lifespan. One widely accepted track asserts that he outlived all the other disciples, authored the Gospel of John, the Book of Revelation, and three epistles, and died of natural causes. Another tradition suggests he was martyred early. Back to this specific gospel scene. James and John approached Jesus. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. This is an audacious statement, a startling role reversal between students and master. Grant that in your glory we may sit one at your right and the other at your left. We might expect a sharp rebuke here. Instead, Jesus ignores their brazenness, it seems, and seizes upon a teachable moment for both of them, for the rest of the twelve, and for all of us. Jesus' response to James and John is nearly as open-ended as their statement of demand. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Given the disciples' collective and repeated misunderstanding of Jesus, it is tempting to infer James and John really do not have any sense of what is behind the metaphor Jesus is using. In Mark's timeline, this scene occurs about a week before Jesus will enter Jerusalem. The exchange here illustrates the great difference in mentalities and expectations between Jesus and his disciples, even those closest to him. The disciples expected power, glory, victory over their Roman enemies. They had no sense of the true nature of the reign of Jesus. Jesus told them his kingdom would be established after he entered Jerusalem. They quite naturally would have expected a final showdown when Jesus would triumph. The way Jesus achieved his triumph, however, was not in any way what his followers expected. The cup. In Hebrew scriptures, the cup is an image of either joy or great sadness and pain. Jesus knows his path involves torture, humiliation, and death before the victory of his resurrection. This is the cup of which he speaks. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed three times, Lord, if there is a way, let this cup pass from me. His question about the cup speaks not only of his suffering in the flesh, but also that which will come to his disciples in any age. Baptism. The Greek root for baptism means immersion. Jesus will be fully immersed in humiliation, degradation, pain, and suffering. As to their desire to sit in positions of honor on his right and left, Jesus tells them, to sit at my right or at my left is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. He puts off their request, but also implicitly admits to his own coming glory. You might wonder, as John witnessed Jesus die between two criminals, one on his right and one on his left, 
do you think he remembered his own request of Jesus? Note also that Jesus did not rebuke the brothers for wanting to share in his greatness. They had been given talents and gifts, as all the baptized, believe it or not, are also gifted. They would ultimately use those gifts to accomplish great things in service to others and for the spread of the gospel. Finally, Jesus shifts to the teachable moment and calls the twelve together. This is the point where the shorter gospel version begins. A common practice among the privileged then, and continuing even today, is to retain power by cruel and ruthless methods. They use their authority to reward allies and punish enemies. Jesus turns this notion on its head for his disciples. As the Gospel reads, You know that those who are recognized as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones make their authority over them felt. But it shall not be so among you. Rather, whoever wishes to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you will be the slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here again, Jesus reverses the expectation of a Messiah who will be militarily invincible or materially wealthy. He announces himself as ultimate servant in his suffering and death, and sets this as the model for all who wish to follow him. Had enough? Me too, for the moment at least. Again, thanks for clicking in. If you think others would benefit from listening to all this stuff, tell them to search for Get Ready for Sunday just about anywhere podcasts are available. And may the blessing of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit overflow in your heart and be evident to others through your actions.